Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the Radio Chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense. And right now, if I sound a little different, it's because for some reason my entire studio equipment crapped out on me when I tried to upgrade my mixer board. So I'm back to old school, the very basics. It's not Apollo 13. Think of (laughs) Sputnik. Uh, So... If the quality sounds a little different, it's because we are struggling to try to get our studio back up and running. But you're here listening to us live here on Blog Talk Radio. It will be uploaded to SHR Media, The Lone Star, Daily News, and half a dozen other different places. Just go to my webpage. It's the name of the show. Put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, who is so erudite and dynamic, Curtis C.S. Bennett. <laughs> Good afternoon, Curtis. Welcome back to the Nut Farm. <laughs> and all the technicalities that go along with it. Now, I'm doing all right, and i um, looking forward to the weekend. And um, as you know, I won't be here next week, so hopefully we, we have a good guest co-host in, in Karen. And um, yeah. I'm looking oh, forward Karen to and returning. I always- Karen and I always have a lot of fun together. Curtis, you just sit in the background and you listen as the two of us go at it. Yes, <laughs> but, uh, I we do. Got... <laughs> but Karen is going to be filling in for you next week while you do your book tour. Karen Watson will be joining us. But today we've got three excellent guests. Doug Giles is joining us again. He promised, promised, promised with a cherry on top that he will be here on time. Uh, Doug Giles has the website The Clash Daily, uh, which is always a lot of fun to uh, talk with him. We also have, we have (laughs) ongoing here a runoff primary in South Carolina, which will culminate this coming Tuesday. So we're going to have the South Carolina GOP chair uh, will be joining us, Drew McKissick, who's a good friend of mine. And we've got a new friend out there. Her name is Risa Kirkland, and she's trying to put together a film, and I've spoken about this a couple of times, about a Korean War hero, uh, and we're going to be talking about that. I watched the movie um, Cease Fire by Hal Willis, uh, filmed in 1953. Uh, twice last night just to go over and have my notes ready for her. But we got a lot to do, a lot to talk about. want to welcome everyone that is joining us up in the studio as well as in the chat room. As I said, we're old school right now because all of my equipment is not working. I've got no sound coming out of my computers. I don't know what went wrong, so I am <laughs> making the show via a landline. Talk about old school, Curtis. Oy, they, it's driving me nuts. It's, it's- it's the Russians. 
<laughs> I don't know. I, I've got four computers, and this, I've got the same problem on all four computers. It, it, and wow. if I had them linked, I could understand, but they're four independent systems, uh, which I link via I wire or something like that, so I can easily detach them so nothing gets corrupted. But four independent computers, I've got the same problem on all four of them. I am, what hair is not gray has finally turned gray today. Oh, man. Anyway, that said, those that listen to the show know we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going out to Sergeant Mujahid Ramzidin. He is of the Prince George's County Police Department of Maryland. His end of watch was on Wednesday, February 21st of this year. And this is from various sources. It's coming from the Officer Down Memorial page, as well as Fox 5 DC. And we begin with Sergeant Mujahid Ramzidin was shot and killed at approximately 10.15 a.m. on February 21st while attempting to protect a female subject who was being attacked in a domestic violence incident in a neighborhood near the intersection of Chad's Ford Road and Chad C. Lane. Sergeant Ramzidin, who was off-duty and lived nearby, attempted to protect the female and confronted the man who was armed with a shotgun. The subject, who had a protective order issued against him, fatally shot Sergeant Ramzidin before stealing his service weapon and fleeing in a vehicle. Responding officers pursued the man approximately 10 miles before he stopped and attempted to flee to a nearby wooded area. The man was shot and killed by pursuing officers after shooting at them. Sergeant Ramzidin had served with the Prince George's County Police Department for 14 years and had previously served with the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. for five years. He was awarded the county's Medal of Valor in 2006 for his courage while engaged an armed suspect. He was a veteran of the District of Columbia Air National Guard and the U.S. Marine Corps. Sergeant Ramzidin is survived by his wife and four children. He was posthumously promoted to the rank, from the rank of corporal to the rank of sergeant. From Brandywine, Maryland. A grieving community honored a fallen Prince George County police officer with a candlelight vigil one week after his tragic death. While his funeral was previously held, this vigil allowed many residents, community members, and fellow officers to come out to the Chad's Ford Community Center to pay their respects to Mujahid Ramzidin in his Brandywine neighborhood. Hundreds of people came together in the evening to remember the fallen officer who made the ultimate sacrifice. Balloons were released into the night sky for Ramzidin during the emotional gathering. Ramzidin's wife, Tammy, talked about how he was extremely religious and had been praying a lot over the last few weeks. She said she feels he was prepared, and she was proud that he gave his life helping someone in need. She also thanked the police chief and all of the officers who have rallied around her family. I cry for all the lost dreams and the grieving and growing old with my husband, Tammy Renziden told the crowd. I cry for the trips we planned together. I cry for us not retiring to Florida. 
I cry for just not spending each and every day together. She added, I am beyond brokenhearted. However, I know I am not grieving alone. I must take this moment to thank all of those who have been here helping me and my family to begin this very slow process of picking up the pieces. For each and every one of us, there will always be a missing piece. Prince George's County Police Chief Hank Stowinski said, The sacrifice Sergeant Ramseden made will never be forgotten. Ramseden was a 14-year veteran of the police force in Prince George's County. He was obviously previously an officer in the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. And before he began his police career, he served in the Marine Corps and the Air National Guard. From Alexandria, Virginia. The family of fallen Sergeant Mujahid Ramzidin is getting a helping hand after such a devastating loss. Area businessman Mike Ticolin, who owns NT Auto Body Shop in Alexandria, Virginia, had been watching the Ramzidin's family story and wanted to help in some way. He reached out to Fox 5 to get in touch with the grieving family. He met with the sergeant's widow, Tammy, and announced he will pay her mortgage for the rest of the year. We are all here to honor your late husband and bless you, said Tikoyan. He and Ramzidin hugged and expressed thanks. Dozens of police officers from Alexandria heard this was happening and came out to be there. They even lined up to give Tammy a hug and express their condolences. While her husband was on the force in Prince George's County, the Alexandria officers make up much of the clientele at NT Auto Body. And when they heard that the, what the owner was doing, they wanted to be there as well to show how, in their own words, blue supports blue. Tammy Ramsden says charity work was very important for both her and her husband. She does a lot of work with the homeless and was clearly touched to be on the receiving end of something like this. Tukoyan says he's fortunate business is good these days, and he's just happy to be able to help in some way. He really did the ultimate sacrifice. And Tammy didn't choose to be a Gold Star family or want to be a Gold Star family. But now it's our turn in return to support the family, he said. Tammy Rizin said she was grateful for the support. My husband was a breadwinner. He took care of, you know, our mortgage payment. For them to step up and offer to do that is huge. It's huge and it takes some concern and worry off of me. My husband's mother has been living with us for the last couple of years. She decided she wants to remain. And even though she's my mother-in-law, she's staying with me, so it helps. It helps a lot, she said. Today's show is dedicated to Sergeant Ramsey. It is also dedicated to all of the brave men and women out there who serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency service. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there who serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into the future. We dedicate it with this song, Amazing Grace. May God bless each and every one of them.
All right, and we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, The Lone Star, Daily News, and half a dozen other different places. I'm your hostess with the most is the Radio Chick, and we're going to take just a break just to earn a little extra money. Please check out this. Listen, guys, I got something special just for my listeners. If you follow me, you know I usually don't hawk products. I stick to the issues important to you and me. But I think I can't keep this to myself. You may want to check this out and get in on the ground floor before everyone else jumps on the bandwagon. Now, this is just for you, my listeners. I joined up with Team Earth Water. Earth Water is a company that is faith-based and patriotic. Earth Water is an amazing water. It will soon be the rage of the nation and is going worldwide. It has over 70 antioxidants and minerals. It's good, trust me. I already sleep better. I dropped one of my prescriptions, and I'm possibly looking to maybe drop another one soon. So ask yourself, do you want to make a few extra bucks on the side while getting healthier? Who doesn't? So if so, check out the Earth Water link on my homepage at Southern Sense. That's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Who doesn't want to make some easy money? You'll earn a 10% commission on what you sell, and they even set up a web page for you to sell from. How easier can that be? Every time a customer returns to your page and buys, boom, you just earned an easy 10% commission. Sign up now. Buy at least a case. And let me know what you think just by going to my web page. That's the name of the show, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. They offer four tiers for affiliates, from one case to 16 cases. I bought four cases to start, and boy, am I hooked on the water. Simply go to my webpage, click on the Earth Water link on the page, and join Team Earth Water. Go to Southern Sense and become a member of my site, and you'll also be entered to win the latest book offer if you become a member of my site. That's the name of the show, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Check it out. I know you'll be pleased. All right, and we're back. And, Curtis, we're waiting for Doug Giles to call in, and hopefully he'll be calling in shortly. But there's a lot to talk about. Oh, yeah. And Kel just posted a great article up in the chat room. You know, they were, over the last several days, um, we've been getting, oh, you're you're tearing children from the parents' arms and this illegal aliens issue. Uh, parents are going to uh, jail because they've committed a crime. They illegally entered our country, yes, whether it's the first time or third time. You know, it's either a misdemeanor or a felony, depending upon that. But you're not going to place that child in the prison with the criminal. By the way, and we've discussed this before, especially in the last couple of shows, how do you know? that the adult that is with that child is the child's relative. You have no way of knowing except for a blood test, you know? So, you know, you're protecting the child. You're putting them into protective custody. They they get three hot, three hot meals, and they get a cot. They get the Game Boys. They get TV. They, they get everything they possibly need, medical care, education. And they're only there for 20 days, but how cruel we are. We're ripping the families apart. Well, you know, all the parent has to do is just say, I'm declaring asylum, and they're immediately 
they just jumpstart the whole line and they're immediately reunited. But you know, it, it, it's 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 gotten to the point where uh, they're calling the uh, the holding areas for these children. They're calling them concentration camps. They're comparing us to the Holocaust and Nazism. Yet, and I'm sure Kel, our northern Canadian gal, could reaffirm this, Canada has far worse facilities for housing children and the illegal aliens. Far worse. We mollycoddle these people. We bend over backwards. They have free attorneys. They've got everything they could possibly want. They're better off than when they were back home. And yet we are the bad guys. Well, the hypocrisy on the left, it is just so shameful. Um, They know as well as we that um, things were a lot worse under the Obama administration. These, These kids, these pictures that they put out and videos of kids in cages and things like that, we we discovered over the last few days that they were doing the Obama administration in 2014. So they know that they're putting forth another piece of propaganda, you know, to spin things their way because where were they when this was going on under Obama, you know? If they, they exactly. care so much for for children... Why do they support Planned Parenthood? You know, why they they fund the killing of, of um, you know, unborn human beings? You know, it's just just crazy the hypocrisy on that side of the aisle. And and I think more and more people are realizing that the Democrat Party and what they stand for is really anti-American and anti-human being. You know humanity so i i say our chances are are good to um to take these guys out in november and um frankly i hope they keep up the madness <laughs> yeah it is it's gotten really really crazy um and and what's coming from hollywood and all the other liberals out there uh, you've got one uh, direct, one scriptwriter, whatever his name is, whatever. I forget what the heck is, some douche. Excuse me. <laughs> you know, I normally don't do something like that on air. Um, it, it, he called for um, Donald Trump Jr.'s daughter to be kidnapped. You have, um, is his name? Oh, uh, Peter Fonda. You're talking about Peter Fonda? No, no. This, oh, this yeah, that's Fonda. A, a Hollywood. Hollywood scriptwriter. I have his name somewhere around here. What the heck is this guy's name? Well, they, uh, Pat they all from DeSalt. the same garbage heap. <laughs> yeah, Pat DeSalt. I never heard of this guy before, so he really must be really, really important in, in Hollywood. Um, but he was calling for you know Donald Trump Jr.'s four-year-old daughter to be kidnapped. Um, you have Peter Fonda that's calling for Byron to be ripped from his mother's arms. This is Donald Trump's senior, his son, his his 12-year son, to be ripped from his mother's arms, put in a cage with a pedophile. How how sick can you possibly be? And, oh, they apologized. They took the tweet down. Well, hello? How about, you know, we get a massive boycott of his new film coming out? Uh, it's called, what, Bar- uh, Barricade? Um, that new film is being released. Well, let's let's just 
boycott the box office and get his film to tank. You have Robert De Niro, who just has a brand new film out. Uh, he's he turned around at the awards dinner and just four times oh, said yeah. F Trump. Hey, boycott Trump his new film. Let, let's hit them where it hurts the most in their wallet. It is about time we pull an Alinsky move, a Cloward Pivot move, back on these SOBs. I, I can't even call them full human beings uh, because they are so despicable, absolutely abhorrent. You know, it, it's well, I'm, terrible. I'm happy that um, she decided to, to get the FBI involved with Peter Fonda because uh, when they make these veil threats, it's almost like Madonna talking about burning down the White House. They need to be, you know, investigated. Same as any one of us would be if we made a threat against the president and his family, you know. We gotta exactly. get rid of this two tier justice system. Well actually three tier because there's justice for us, for um celebrities and for the Clintons. <laughs> 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 That's a good one. I like that one. Oh, we we got we got someone calling in on the line, and it's our friend Cool Mike. Good afternoon, Cool Mike. How are you today? Good afternoon, uh, Curtis. That was a great hey, line. Mike. <laughs> a separate justice system for the Clintons. I like it. <laughs> oh yeah, so true. That's the top. Uh, one tier. of the. All right, so uh, Southern Sense has a. I'm I'm going to reveal something. It's breaking news. It'll, this is going to go viral. I agree we don't want to separate parents from the kids. So, since progressives love Cuba and Canada so much, we should have a boat and a train ready to go. When the illegals show up, they have their choice. Cuba, where it's nice and warm and they have the great health care system and loving uh, the Castro family. Or Canada, uh, where it's very cold most of the time and the loving uh, Trudeau family. So, uh, that <laughs> takes care of the problem. Oh, wait a minute. No, it doesn't. Because Cuba and Canada don't take uh, illegals like we do, do they? <laughs> no. So send them to Argentina, uh, China, Cuba has about North as Korea. Much, Cuba has about as much use for these stupid white uh, white liberals who are lazy and have an uh, a entitlement mentality. They can't even put them in slave camps because they don't work. <laughs> Well, it looks like we got our guest in on the line. Let's let's bring on. I do believe this is Doug Giles. Good afternoon, Doug. Ann, how you doing? All right, you remembered me. Thank you. <laughs> it's been a crazy month. Oh man, I have to apologize. Normally, I have a full studio going with two computers, and we're up all over the place. But I tried to upgrade my mixer board, and it crapped out my entire system. So I've got four computers that none of them is taking my studio equipment. So I'm old school. So if I sound a little weird <laughs> and a little whacked out, I am. I had a computer guy here for three and a half hours, and he still can't figure out what went wrong. Holy moly, guys. If it's not broke, don't fix it, right? <laughs> well, you must anyway. be either doing something right or something wrong. So, uh well, Someone suggested maybe it was a troll that attacked my system, and I wouldn't put it past because it wouldn't be the first time I've been attacked and had pages uh, knocked down and everything, so I wouldn't put it past. Anyway, we were talking about uh, the craziness, the attacks that are going on the Trump family and uh, people around him because you had 
Uh, Peter Fonda, with that disgusting tweet, is suggesting that Byron be assaulted by a pedophile. You had this other guy, Pat DeSalt, uh, some Hollywood screenwriter that never heard of, so he's got to be really important, uh, saying that Donald Trump's uh, daughter, Donald Trump Jr.'s daughter, a four-year-old, should be kidnapped. Um, you've got uh, Kristen uh, Nielsen that was attacked in a... Uh, Mexican restaurant where she was having dinner with another uh, member of her staff, it has gotten crazy. Well, that's what the left has uh, uh, left is, is just violence and screaming shame, shame, shame at, a, at uh, our department, Homeland Security chief, while she's eating uh, dinner with, with one of her male buddies. They can't argue with what he's done for the economy. They can't argue with what he's done in, uh, you know, putting – uh, more minorities and women into the workforce. Those numbers are so damning and so staggering. Uh, Hillary predicted uh, during her debates with, with Trump in 2016 during the primary that Trump's policy would plunge our nation into a recession, and it's done the exact opposite. And uh, so, you know, they, they, can't, they can't handle that. They can't handle the fact that uh, Kim Jong-un is denuclearizing, and the first time North and South Korea uh, presidents or dictators ever shook hands in 65 years was on Trump's watch. So everything, everything that they predicted about uh, Trump being a disaster, it hasn't come true. So they got to strain some gnats and make a big deal out of nothing, and uh, and that's all that they got left. And if I was a liberal, um, I, I would be so embarrassed that. You know, my party leaders and, and my uh, representatives in the media have gone to such an inane extreme to make points instead of just civilly deal with policy issues and, and have a debate based on reason. They've gone into just crazy ass mode, and uh, I think it's going to cost them the midterms. I hope so. I really do hope so, uh, because my own uh, state congressman, uh, federal congressman, uh, Mark Sanford, lost in the primary to an outsider. And uh, Katie, uh, uh, well, yeah, Katie Arrington is going to be uh, taking his place, it looks like, because this is a heavily, heavily red area here. So I don't see a Democrat taking this seat. So we will be seeing Katie Arrington going, and she is really great. Really great. And I see her going into the Freedom Caucus. And you see the Freedom Caucus stepping up where you had um, uh, Meadows going toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose with uh, Paul Ryan just the other day on the floor of the House. <laughs> That's unheard of. So we're we're seeing a revolution occurring. Well, it's, uh, you know, Trump Trump kicked it off. Uh, I, don't, I don't think um... – any of the other candidates uh, that ran for president on the GOP ticket, as good as some of them are, I don't think uh, any of them could have had the incredible success that Trump's had in just a little over 500 days. And again, that drives you know the liberals batty because they they there's there's nothing to argue with uh, in regards to you know again what he's done for our economy. And, uh, I mean, you look at food stamps are, are plummeting. People are bailing off of them. Uh, the unemployment numbers for blacks, Hispanics, and like I said, for women is, is higher than ever before. I mean, we've seen record, you know, stuff happening in, uh, 
in the New York Stock Exchange. It's 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 stupefying, and so they so they've got to uh, they've got to uh, they've got to yell and scream and protest and put out death threats against little four year old granddaughters of uh, the president. I hope they throw their butts in jail, man. I, I hope Peter Fonda gets Roseanne. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, can you imagine saying that? I hope Baron Trump, or, or if if I said I hope Sasha and Malia Obama uh, are put in a cage with a cage with pedophiles, uh, Clash Daily would not exist anymore. I would be hounded, you know, into the darkest recesses of our country, uh, never to see the light of day again. But they can do it, and they'll probably get a damn award, you know. <laughs> That's true. And, you know, everyone keeps bringing up Roseanne Barr, but Roseanne Barr is no conservative, not even close. She is a dyed-in-the-wool liberal, and what she was doing was actually mocking conservatives in the conservative Trump movement. But, you know, she paid the price because she played a pro-Trump person. But you also see now uh, Last Man Standing is supposed to be coming back, too. And well, I love you know, that. You know, the uh, – Hollywood will never get the lesson uh, that people want to see uh, conservative opinion, you know, on television and on the big screen. Uh, they keep putting out one flop after another and giving each other Academy Awards and, and you know, self-congratulating and preening each other. Uh, and yet the movies that they put forth, like um, the, the one where this gay man has a relationship with an underage teenage gay boy, and they they gave that crap an Oscar, but it flopped in the box office. Meantime, you get you know uh, Christian films and conservative films. They they freaking skyrocket. But um, yeah, thank God Last Man Standing uh, gets another nod by ABC. I don't know if it's uh, for just pure monetary reasons or or uh, philosophical reasons. I'm glad to see it up there, and hopefully uh, Tim Allen uh, will stay his course. Absolutely. We got a question from our friend in the chat room, Ron. He's asking, how is your Clash TV coming along? You've got a new TV show. Yeah, it's, um, uh, we, we got our license on uh, Roku. We're, we're not really pushing it heavy right now. We're building a ton of content, and we're bringing on uh, some, some absolutely world-class uh, programming. Uh, we're just waiting for the ducks to get in the row a little bit more, and then uh, people can watch it on Roku and Amazon Prime and and uh, working to get it on Netflix, and um, but it's a lot of work, man. A lot of money too. <laughs> wow, I mean, uh, Netflix actually will entertain a conservative show, really, really. Well, again, you know, it's uh, uh, I don't know if it'll pass the Susan Rice Obama test. They're judging it right now, but Amazon Prime already gave us the green light, and uh, so. I don't watch Netflix anyway. You know, I just say that because you know there's still some people that like to give money to the enemy, uh, <laughs> so maybe they can watch that in between. You know, the propaganda that they put forth. It's really sad, man. Just uh, again, what you're what you were saying, how how especially like during the immigration debate, how how the term Nazi and concentration camp was thrown around so willy-nilly by the left and in the quote-unquote media. Uh, the rhetoric is, I've never seen it as rank before in my life. And one of the things that I found interesting uh, with the passing of Charles Krauthammer yesterday was um, 
Juan Williams, who's uh, who's a liberal who used to be on Brett Baer's uh, show, Special Report, he said that he and Charles would, you know, obviously argue and go at each other and, you know, trade punches. And he said, he said at the end of the day, there was no doubt whatsoever that uh, Krauthammer considered uh, Juan a friend, uh, an intelligent human being, and there wasn't the nastiness and the divisiveness that's part and parcel of the left. And uh, after hearing all the tributes about Krauthammer yesterday, I think Wands was the most powerful because everybody else was pretty much simpatico with him from a, a philosophical and a political standpoint. Juan wasn't, and he was hammered by Krauthammer's passing because he really pointed out, like, listen, I could tell that this man loved me. Now, with the left, when they disagree with somebody, pure, vile, vile hatred. You look at mm-hmm. what happens when when people pass away, Annie, that are conservatives. Uh, I mean, it's just the it's just the grossest stuff ever read or written on Twitter. You know, and same, forget passing away. Look what they're doing to Ivanka and Melania. And if I was a liberal, I wouldn't want anything to do with that kind of stuff. I would I would so shy away, run away from that kind of uh, that kind of messaging. It's just toxic. It's it's freaking evil. And I hope people are paying attention who are apolitical, even if they don't really understand conservatism or libertarianism. I hope they understand hatred and uh, what that'll do uh, when pushed in this country. Well, you see, I've said this all along. We've lost the ability to have a civil discourse. It's something that, you know, I'll turn around and I'll start to debate someone, but the second you start to delve into that area, you start to call me a Nazi or whatever, then I know, number one, I just won the, the argument. And number two, there's no way in the world I will ever get you to see any other side of the issue except your own. And that's when I know, hey, it's time to walk away, wipe my hands of it, and walk away from that person forever. But we don't have that. We don't have this a civil discourse anymore. It's either my way or no other way. I'm willing to listen. Prove to me what your point is. I'm willing to listen. But we don't have that on the left anymore. There is no listening. When you have Nancy Pelosi out there turning around and saying that the tax cuts that gave people raises was nothing, it, w- it was disgusting, as she called it. Uh, she called it several other different things. And, and excuse me, <laughs> I get a tax cut plus a raise. I'm very happy. Don't tell me that's nothing. Yeah, it's uh, it's just crumbs to Pelosi, you know, who who has um, a beautiful vineyard uh, in the San Francisco area. And I heard I heard also that uh, if if the men are at her hotel and and they get lonely, that she's uh, staffed it with uh, escorts that will, you know, um, keep them busy at night. <clears throat> yeah, it's, uh, again, it, and and uh, I I do think you're right in when it when it comes to uh who this this petulantness falls to i think it's i think it's uh nearly solely on the left uh and and you're correct they they're not discussing any ideas we obey them or they shout us down you know or they they hit us with epithets like you're a nazi you're adolf hitler it's so childish it's so stupid it so lacks reason and uh, for a group that posits themselves as tolerant, uh, they're some of the most intolerant people 
I've ever seen. I mean, that what I don't know if you saw Trump going through the rotunda in the Capitol uh, earlier this week. He passes by, and an intern says, hey, President Trump, F you. If I saw – and listen, I fought against Barack Obama. I fought against Hillary Clinton. If I ever saw uh, Obama or Hillary in public, uh, I, I would not drop the F-bomb on them. I wouldn't scream shame. Uh, if I was introduced to them, I would politely shake their hands and and uh, you know wish them wish them well, etc. I don't understand this kind of stuff at all, man. It just absolutely so, blows my mind. No, so, I, I don't so, understand I'm, either. Go ahead, Curtis. I've always said that um, Republicans and conservatives and those on the right, we respond to things on a cerebral level. While those on the left, especially liberals and progressives, they respond on an emotional level, and that's the difference. Um, but I will tell you this much. When we get emotional, we get results. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, – again, and if you lead, if you lead with, uh, with, with reason and uh, sound wisdom and arguments, um, you know, it's – if people can be persuaded still in America, uh, that's the only way it's going to bring about any kind of effective uh, traditional value, constitutional type uh, change. Uh, I, I love how uh, they don't get sarcasm, they don't get hyperbole. Uh, we we had a we did a podcast and uh, and my co-host. Um, he jokingly said about the immigration debate, he goes, yeah, I hate, uh, I hate Mex- uh, Mexicans. I hate Latinos. Yeah, right, sure. They took him literally. He was making a joke. He, 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 his, his wife's Hispanic. His four kids are Hispanic. Uh, and he was being facetious. And they take that little soundbite, man, and they freaking run with it. It's so dishonest. Uh, no wonder people scream CNN sucks uh, during the Trump rally. And uh, I think uh, I think America is waking up to the fact that they're being bamboozled. And I think Trump calling yeah, uh, I think not Trump calling them out. You know, it's just it's just amazing because nobody ever called out you know these propagandists before, but uh, he's doing it like a champion. Yeah, well, yeah, not only a, that, but. Um, on their side, they can't get enough of their people dropping f bombs and things like that. You know, I saw I saw Stephen Colbert uh, uh, use a word that I couldn't even, I couldn't even believe that. I mean, you get Samantha B calling Ivanka a feckless c word. Stephen Colbert uh, used a word about Trump uh, doing a specific thing to Putin and used one of the one of the one of the grossest, tersest terminology mm-hmm. known to mankind. And, and, the fact, that. Yeah, and the fact that the FCC doesn't get rid of them, they're like, oh, that's freedom of expression. It's freedom of speech. And it's the quadruple standards for the rank rhetoric that spews out of the, the mouth of the leftist. You guys wouldn't get away with it. Uh, Fox News wouldn't get away with it. They would burn those places down if they utilized it. 
against one of the darlings on the left, and they said, you know, the sick things that uh, these late night talk show hosts and these supposed unfunny comedians uh, uh, spill out of their spigot. Uh, they would, we'd get fired, we'd get canned, we'd get shamed out of the country, man. Oh, that's true. That is absolutely true. And it's it's not getting better. It's actually getting worse. And yet they they think it gives them freedom to keep on going at it. And they don't realize that sooner or later it's going to completely backfire. This is not what mainstream America is about. And they think they, they speak for all of America. No, they don't. They don't speak for me. They don't speak for my neighbors. They don't speak for any member that's in my church. And... Uh, I was going to mention earlier, because I, I, I saw this up on your website, and I had to play the video. I was cracking up. I think this is one of the funniest ones you put up so far. Where Trump was at the uh, rally in Duluth, uh, Minnesota, and this guy decided to heckle him, and he was wearing a man bun. And, guys, you've got to go to Clash Daily. You've got to click on the video that he has titled underneath, Trump Fires Back at Heckler with a Man Bun, and it's funny. It I, It was great. It was they don't understand our sarcasm and how Trump can turn the tables within a heartbeat on these people. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to see. Yeah, and I don't, you know, um, uh, I don't think, you know, Cruz would have done it. I don't think Rubio would have, uh, you know, given it back to them uh, like they're giving it to those on the right and Trump and his family in particular. I think, um I mean, look at George W. Bush. He just bite his lip and, you know, start doing that weird head shake when, when enemies would take him on. He wouldn't say anything derogatory back. Uh, and listen, I get, you know, not returning insult for insult uh, to, to an extent. And there's also time when, when the, the egregious nature of, of the crap that the left is slinging is so over the top that you've got to boldly uh, take them on, shame them. And uh, and and put them in their place, and I don't think they thought uh, Trump would a get elected and b he would come off like that. And uh, I, I I hope it emboldens America to stand up for their values instead of just be shamed and cowed to speak about them only in private. You know. Uh, that's true. That's true. Because you have now like Wikipedia is calling. The uh, the facilities that were housing these immigrant alien uh, not immigrant they're alien illegal alien children in uh, concentration camps and ever who who doesn't refer to Wikipedia anymore it, it it's gotten crazy but uh, just to change the subject a little bit because I came across this article and I'm not sure if you know about this but there's a former Secret Service agent by the name of Gary J Byrne. And he's been an outspoken critic of the Clintons uh, ever since he lost the lost no left the White House and their employee. He's filed actually a RICO lawsuit against former uh, President Bill Clinton, uh, former Secretary of State his wife Hillary Clinton, and a list of others, um, which include uh, the Clinton Foundation, the Clinton uh, Gustra Enterprise Partnership, which is that Russian uh, oil company, Media Matters. Uh, correct the record. America Bridge, 21st Century, Share Blue. Never heard of that one. David Brock, George Soros, John Podesta, and also a fellow veteran Secret Service agent and CNN law enforcement analyst, Jonathan Wackro. Uh So maybe, maybe we may see some repercussions with the Clintons finally. Uh, that guy's probably going to wind up dead. You know, I, I saw, I saw yesterday, and I, you know, I'm 
uh, laughing about it, but I'm actually not joking. I was reminded uh, yesterday the litany of uh, dead bodies, you know, these one-person suicides where the where the victim shot himself twice in the back of the head, uh, how, how it's approaching, what, five dozen, six dozen of people who took on Hillary and uh, opposed them. I don't know if you guys saw it in uh, Anthony Bourdain's tweet, and I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist, but uh, he slammed Hillary Clinton and went after her and uh, Bill canoodling with Harvey Weinstein, who raped uh, Bourdain's girlfriend, Asia Argenta. And, um, and he went after them, I think, two days prior to his death. And then, you know, there he is, a guy who had everything in the world going for him. Not saying that it was a Clinton thing. I'm just, I'm just saying it's, it's interesting. He yeah. goes after the Clintons on Twitter. And, yeah, next thing you know, he's dead. Well, Doug, um, we've got our next guest in on the line with us. He's our South Carolina GOP chair. I don't know if you want to Beautiful. hang out or if you need to run, uh, but let me bring no. on Drew. I got uh, a, I got Drew. a scat, and thank you. Okay, the, thanks a lot, Doug. Doug Giles, check yeah. him out. The Daily, the Clash Daily. Let me get it correctly. Clash Daily. Check it out. ClashDaily.com. Good afternoon, Drew. How are you today? Doing well. How about yourself? Oh, outside of having some major technical difficulties in my studio, I'm fine. I'm fine. Oh well, I had a tech guy here for about three and a half hours, and we still can't get everything up and running, so I'm a little <laughs> old school today. Anyway, I know you're running around crazier than a one-armed paper hanger because we've got the mm. uh, primary runoff coming up, and uh, there's some major races, one of them being the governor's race with uh, John Warren mm. being pitted against Henry McMaster. I'm, I'm telling you, I can't wait until this is over because my phone has been ringing off the hook with campaign call after <laughs> campaign call. Oh, please. <laughs> She's probably been polled uh, two or three or four times by now, I think, probably. <laughs> uh, how about maybe a dozen? <laughs> <laughs> it's busy, and it'll be busy right up until Tuesday. And, you know, I'm, I'm ready, uh, 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 well, like a lot of other people, for Wednesday to get here. Uh, so uh, we can uh, get things settled and we can start uh, focusing on Democrats. Oh, please, please. Because I actually think we're going to – the Democrats are hoping for a blue tidal wave. And they've, they've been tweeting out and putting out in all the social networks that a blue tidal wave is coming. I think the exact opposite is going to happen. What do you think? Uh, well, you know, uh, I can't I – mean, you know, all politics is local, as the old saying goes, but uh, – I can say this much. I think South Carolina is where blue tidal waves will go to die uh, in this election cycle, let's put it that way. Uh, you know, we don't have indications of that or anything that even smells like that or looks remotely like that here in South Carolina. Uh, and, you know, and, and the bottom line is, uh, you know, the stuff that they're selling doesn't sell down here. Uh, you know, they're selling socialism. They're selling bigger government. They're selling higher taxes. They're selling you know, uh, non-traditional South Carolina values. Uh, just, you know, if people aren't buying what you're selling, you're not going to be successful. And, you know, they won't change their product, so to speak. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't expect that to change. Yeah, because I'm looking at some of the races that we have in the runoff. So besides the governor, uh, we also have District 1, um, where we've got the runoff between uh, Mark Sanford and Katie Arrington. Um, yes, ma'am. 
Actually, no, no, no. There's no runoff in that one. That's right. Well, there's no runoff. Yeah, we'll have the we'll have yeah. the regular campaign now. Yeah, yeah. Katie can't yeah. warm without runoff. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I have Mark on speed dial, so he and I talk a lot. Uh, but we do uh-huh. have the runoff in District 4 with Lee Bright and William Timmons. Right. Uh, right. so I don't know Timmons, mm-hmm. but I do I do know Lee. Um, Lee uh-huh. and I are good friends, too. Uh, so we, it's it's good seats. And I don't see going uh, blue at all. Oh, no. I mean, it, these are two open seats. Uh, or I say open seat. Essentially, there will be you know open seats because there's also the primary there in the um, in the first district. So, uh, but in both cases, you're talking about uh, you know safe Republican seats. Uh, you know, for instance, I, I don't know the number offhand for the first district, but I think the fourth district is something like what you would consider a plus uh, sixteen uh, Republican district. Uh, and, you know, the first is not far behind that. I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head. So, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, it's not that we take anything for granted. We won't be taking anything for granted. Uh, we'll be doing, uh, you know, what we usually do. You know, our people work together as a team, uh, and we'll continue to. We've got, you know, and down the first district, uh, we've got a great candidate, a great ground game, uh, hard worker, organized real well, has a great message, and she'll be fully integrated into our statewide victory program. Uh, you know, and again, they, you know, they they claim they've got an attractive candidate down there, and Mr. Cunningham. And the point is, again, comes back to the message: you know, if people aren't buying what you're selling, uh, you're not going to be successful. And you know, they they really don't have their game together. I mean, even the state chairman of the Democratic Party was on Twitter here a couple of days ago criticizing the National Democrats for not focusing on the first district enough to suit him. Uh, so you know, if he's doing that publicly, I don't know how much yelling and cussing they might be doing privately you know, on the phones. <laughs> Um, so, you know, who knows, but they, they, they've given no indication that they're, they're all, uh, paddling in the same direction and working together as a team. So, uh, uh, so contrast that with, you know, what we usually have on our side and that I fully expect we'll have, uh, after next Tuesday, once we get things settled. Yeah. Cause I'm looking at some of the Democrats and I had to really look up who was running against Katie Arrington in the democratic party. Mm-hmm. Cause I have not seen a single sign around here. I see hers mm-hmm. all over the place. Nice and prominent. Mm-hmm. haven't seen anything of his and I'm laughing because no. when I look at uh, what's running against Joe Wilson, uh, you've got Annabelle Robertson who puts herself up as an attorney and progressive mm-hmm. activist. That'll go yeah. real well over. Yeah. Good luck uh, you've that. Got, <laughs> <laughs> and here's, here's a guy that has absolutely no chance running against Joe Wilson from the American Party. Mm-hmm. He puts down uh-huh. his background as a liquor store owner. Uh-huh. <laughs> that qualifies him uh, for yeah, yeah, which, you know, uh, <laughs> might help in some areas with, the, uh, as they say, get out the vote activities. But uh, uh, that, that aside, you know, I mean, in the 5th Congressional District, obviously, you know, uh, Ralph Norman, uh, he'll be running for a first full term as a congressman. Uh, and as you know, you're probably aware, uh, you know, some very interesting news came out on his Democratic opponent before he managed to win his Democratic primary, where he had had uh, domestic abuse uh, um, uh, issues that uh, turned up in his uh, divorce uh, filings from back in the 70s. Uh, even, mm-hmm. you know, prominent state Democrats, including the state party chairman and the former state chairman and several other elected uh, Democrats were calling on him to drop out of the race and you know because it gets him completely sideways with uh, their uh uh me too message as they call it um 
but uh, uh, he you know refused to heed the call, stayed in the race, and still actually won the primary. And despite the fact that you know the man had uh, had uh, even admitted to not not just allegations, but admitted uh, to such things in his past, uh, you know Democrats still nominated him as a congressional candidate. So you know that that one takes the fifth congressional district sort of. Uh, you know, uh, I don't want to say off the worry list. It wouldn't have been on the worry list, but obviously when it's the first term, you know, you want to give it some extra attention. Uh, but, you know, again, uh, that, that leads me to believe uh, they might uh, spend more time focusing on the top of the ticket here in the state, and that brings us to James Smith. And, again, he's got his own problems, uh, and, you know, not the least of which is uh, calling essentially for expansion of uh, uh, Obamacare via Medicare here in the state putting state on the hook for uh, uh, well, what would potentially be a couple of billion dollars uh, over the years in terms of, uh, yeah, I mean, this money grows on trees for these people. At least they think that it does, apparently. Um, you know, when you're a kid, you know, you want to buy this and you want to buy that, you know, and you hear your parents tell you all the time, money doesn't grow on trees. You know, but apparently, you know, uh, I guess Democrats' parents never told them that or something. Either that or they didn't listen. <laughs> you know, apparently there's money trees out there somewhere that you just go shake and all these programs are just magically able to be paid for with no impact on the economy whatsoever. And, you know, it's just nirvana. So anyway. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting, depending upon who comes out on top on the Republican on this Tuesday with the governorship, uh, because if John Warren does beat Henry McMaster, you're pitting an Iraqi war veteran against an Afghan war veteran with James Smith. Uh-huh. And yeah. I would see that them playing very heavily on their military backgrounds on that. Which oh, I would sure. say at I'm this sure. point, it would put uh, John Warren with the upper hand on that, because I don't see that going to a Democrat in this election cycle, mm-hmm. even if it is McMaster. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure we wouldn't care about that. And I mean, you know, like people serve their country, and that's, that's fantastic. We're proud of people who do that. Uh, we commend that. Uh, you know, but then we move on to, uh, you know, experience and qualifications and, you know, other things like that. You know, I mean, whatever it is that you bring to the table, uh, whether it's, you know, some sort of management experience or whether it's political in nature, business in nature or whatever. And, you know, then you have, you know, James Smith, you know, who's an attorney uh, and, uh, you know, spends his time uh, either suing people or working in the legislature. <laughs> so, you know, uh, there's a little bit of a contrast. So whichever way uh, things end up on our side, there'll be a stark contrast in the fall. Uh, and, you know, we're completely comfortable with that. And again, you know, no matter how much they try, they will not be able to run away from their national Democratic buddies because, you know, number one, we're not going to let them. Uh, I mean, see, that's not the kind of thing they like to talk about uh, in, in public company anyway. And we know how they all really feel because we see the way they act, but I think nobody's looking. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, they're Democrats. They're wearing that jersey, and they believe the same things. And whenever they get a chance, they support those same things nationally. Uh, and, you know, again, that kind of stuff doesn't sell in South Carolina when people know that that's actually what you believe, and we'll make sure that they do. True. Well, I got a question. Mm-hmm. Sure. Can you hear me, Annie? Yes, sir. Yes, um, got you. I know that the, uh, the left is hoping to um, – overwhelm us with this this blue tidal wave in November and for the sole the sole uh, purpose of um giving us higher taxes and um taking down Trump 
But these guys, they, they always have a fallback. And what I want to ask you has to do with this National Popular Vote Initiative. Are you aware of it? And oh, yeah, if so, what is your state doing to um, try to stop it? Well, I mean, in, in South Carolina, it'll never pass here. It obviously has to get past the legislature. And that, that's saying the you know, snowball's chance in the devil's living room of passing in South Carolina. Uh, you know, um, that's, it can't. I mean, essentially, all that, well, it does a lot of things. Uh, but, you know, one thing we know that it does is it negates, uh, essentially, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a way for liberals who can't get a constitutional amendment passed to do something they want to do to try to negate part of the Constitution, you know, through different means. The Electoral College. Uh, exactly. Trying to get rid of the Electoral College or get rid of the impact of the Electoral College if they can't actually get rid of it constitutionally. And, you know, so, uh, and the, the, you know, the, the impact of that is, you know, a state like South Carolina, which, you know, we have nine electoral votes, uh, would have less impact on the political process than we otherwise do, for one. Uh, secondly, we would see far fewer, if hardly any at all, presidential, you know, candidates. Uh, uh, and you would have uh, essentially campaigns in the fall spending all of their time and all of their money focused on mega states and cities with huge populations because essentially what they're trying to do is make it a popular vote contest not an electoral vote contest you know the elect, part of the, the beauty of the electoral college is not only does it protect small states versus big states but it also you know essentially uh, makes it necessary for a campaign to run a, a larger geographic campaign, if you will, the footprint of the campaign that actually run it. Instead of focusing in, you know, a few states with large populations or large cities, they have to spread their campaign out geographically. So the focus is not on getting a majority, of, uh, absolute majority of popular support, but rather a, you know, a very broad and diverse consensus or coalition across the country. And, you know, if you were to get rid of that, then, you know, everybody will be campaigning in Florida, Texas, California, New York, and, you know, Chicago, and uh, trying to run up score. Democrats will try to run up score in the urban areas and forget about the rest of the country. And, you know, because the difference between the Republican and Democratic populations across the country is Democrats are more densely packed the smaller geographic footprints than Republicans are, just as a general population across the country. Uh, and so, for instance, that's the thing that benefits Republicans when it comes to congressional district lines. You know, our Republicans across America are more evenly spread out, whereas Democrats tend to be piled up in more urban areas. So the result is whenever congressional district lines get drawn, uh, it, you know, it makes it harder to draw as many Democratic districts as Republican districts because of the, you know, the, the way the population is dispersed across the country. But, you know, electoral college change or a popular vote model that are trying to push legislatively would uh, essentially tilt the presidential election towards, you know, L.A., San Francisco, New York, Chicago, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Drew, I, I have you. As soon as I found out about that the legislation was up in the uh, committees, I got a hold of Chip Campson, who chaired the Judicial mm -hmm. Committee. I got a hold of Shannon Erickson, and both of them promised me it was never 
going to come out of committee. Yeah. So I know we killed it here in Correct. South Carolina. But, uh, Drew, I know you do have to run, and uh, good luck because I know you're, like I said, you're busier than a one-armed paper hanger out there. And God <laughs> bless you for the hard work and bringing our, our Republican Party here in South Carolina along a more conservative oh. venue. And I know I get Absolutely. I get flat from some members of the party when I say that, but I don't care. <laughs> well, you know, don't worry about what other people have to say about what you believe. That's one of the first things you need to learn in politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've gotten to that point of life. I don't care anymore. There <laughs> There's too little left in my life, so I'm putting that all that worry out the window. If you don't like it, tough. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Know what you believe, why, and don't worry about other people. <laughs> Absolutely true. Thank you so much for joining us, Drew. And uh, yes, I'll be ma'am. happy to be with you all. Take care. All right. I take Bye-bye. care. Drew McKissick, uh, he's the chair of the South Carolina GOP over here. And let's bring on the next guest because I see her sitting there very patiently in the sidelines. Let's welcome aboard Risa Kirkland. Good afternoon, Risa. How are you today? Hi, Anne. How are you? I'm delighted to be here. I've been waiting for this. <laughs> You know, um, you, you had sent me a link up on LinkedIn, I don't know how long ago, and I have been so swamped, so backlogged. Sometimes I sit down at my computer and I've got like two or three hundred emails I have to sift through. Uh, oh, good, it's, it's not just me. Heavens, <laughs> it's not just me. Because I'll tell you, my son will say, it's never a minute when you say, I just need to hurry and check my email and it is it just kind of snowballs once you're on there of things you need to get done right away and he's right he's right it's never a minute so i totally get it (laughs) i mean i've got an email sitting here from about 10 years ago still in there i haven't deleted (laughs) (laughs) i love it i love it oh my gosh isn't that the truth i i Uh, tell people every now and then please email me again if you don't hear right away because you never know with, like, breaking news, I may have to yeah. put everything on hold and focus on that a minute. Oh, gee. And it turns I mean, out not being a minute, more like a month. <laughs> no, it, it never is. It never is. Plus, if you add in the social networks that you're on, such as, you know, Facebook, One Way, right. We, Gab AI, and, oh, good Lord. Right. I, I'm I, up on that. I'm on four, and I just don't think I can do any more. Well, I'm actually, by the time you add Instagram and Pinterest, I guess I'm on six. It is a full-time job monitoring all those, I'll tell you. And if you're somebody that writes articles and stuff like I do, you're always posting them and promoting them on places like that. So good grief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, I came in contact with you because you have a little pet project. And um, if I was reading all the postings uh, correctly, uh, somehow or other you have a connection to this individual that you want to get a film made about. Uh, is that right, true? Are you, exactly. Well, uh, was it your dad? It was my dad. Yes, thank you. My dad, you know, growing up, and this is true of the Korean War generation, they didn't talk a lot about their war, which I found odd as I learned more about it, uh, given that it was the only war we had started in the 20th century. We were still fighting in the 90s when I came across this story and into the 21st century. And uh, my dad had vaguely mentioned once he had been in the Navy uh, and uh, in a submarine. And our subs didn't see a lot of action in Korea uh, really, the only ships that did were um, 
aircraft carriers for launching uh, airstrikes and some offshore bombardment, things like that. So a, a lot of the Navy wasn't as heavily involved in Korea as they'd been in World War One and World War Two. And so he had vaguely mentioned once uh, that he'd had a friend die in Korea. And that is the only thing I ever remember hearing him say about it. And then one bored Sunday night, uh, we were up at my parents, because we lived in uh, Pocatello, Idaho, with, and, and they lived there too until my dad died. And, you know, I, I lived there, I was married, and I had my sons there. And one Sunday evening after church, we would always go up there for dinner and everything, and I was just kind of bored. So I went into my dad's room and got out his uh, uh, this little scrapbook he'd had growing up and was just casually looking through it. And I came across, said it was from Paramount Pictures. And I'm like, this is a shot from a movie. Uh, because in front of the theaters, they used to put actual pictures from scenes of the movie out front in the display case um, to advertise it. And I was looking at it and going, why is this in depth? You know, I knew he was a big John Wayne fan and and Gary Cooper and all the classics, and he loved the war and and, uh, cowboy movies, of course, from the genre he was growing up in. And I kind of unbuckled it from where it was attached and looked at the back, and it said, um, to Robert from the Carrasco family. And I'm like, okay, this is so weird. It's addressed to Dad, and I go, who's Carrasco? Well, then next to it, there was a picture of my dad uh, right before he left on an LDS mission. There was an old, I could tell immediately it was an APO uh, military type letter. Uh, They're addressed to my dad, and then I looked at the return address, and it was from Carrasco. And I go, okay, they're connected, this letter to my dad. And I'm looking at it going, "This, this has to be someone that was a friend or something. And then right next to that, there was an envelope, and typed on the outside of the envelope was Reader's Digest article about Ricardo Carrasco. And I went, okay, now the, the mystery deepens, <laughs> baby. And so I, I open that envelope, and I pull out this, this folded uh, tear-out from an old Reader's Digest. And it said November 1959 issue. And I open it up, and, it, and it's titled The Movie Star You Never Saw. And it said by Hal Wallace. And at the time, I had no idea who that was. It rang a little bit of a bell. But at that time, it didn't. started to read it, and then I realized why it rang a bell, because Hal Wallace had been the head of first Warner Brothers and then had a falling out with the Warner Brothers in uh, the late, 30s, early 40s, and Hal Wallace's nickname was the Star Maker, because everyone he ever pegged to become a movie star became one. And he made movies like Casablanca and Gunfight at the OK Corral. He discovered Betty Davis, Kirk Douglas, I mean, all of the originals back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, He did all the Martin and Lewis comedies that were just freaking hilarious. And I'm not sure if this is a plus. It may be in the South, and God bless them, there's become a genre where they have become cult classics, but he saw the potential in Elvis 
and he did the Elvis movie, uh, especially the one centered around the military. Now, uh, Hal Wallace was a very conservative man. They all were in the beginnings of Hollywood and through the 30s, 40s. It was about the mid to late 50s you started to see the change uh, in Hollywood. And I recognized then who he was. And I went, so this, this is odd. It says it's about Ricardo Carrasco, the article in the envelope that was in my dad's scrapbook. But it's written by one of the most famous movie producers of all time who went on after Warner Brothers to become the head of Paramount Pictures all the way up through the late 60s. And so I'm going, this, I just, what is going on here? And I opened it and started to read it. And in it, he starts to talk about the fact that they made a movie on the front lines of the Korean War. And it's the only time I later had it verified from the Pentagon. The only time in American military history this ever happened. And when I had it verified, the man at the Pentagon said, and you can tell your readers it'll never be allowed again because changes in the DOD would never allow this again. So this remains an eternally unique story. But at the time, I'm reading through it. And he started to describe they shot a movie entirely on the front lines of the um, Korean War while the battle for the ceasefire was going on between May and July 1953, right as they were about to declare ceasefire. And it said that they had never done a movie like this before, where it was about frontline troops, and instead of actors, and they never before had this happened, they used all frontline troops. There was not a single named actor playing a military role in that movie. They were all the real thing. And so um, he said that the director, whose name was Owen Crump, went along among the troops and picked out, handpicked, 13 American soldiers to play Easy Patrol and, and one ROK soldier, Republic of Korea soldier. And the 14 men were the plot of the movie was to go out on what was to be the last day of the war, quote unquote, before the ceasefire went into effect. For instance, they knew the ceasefire was to go into effect that day, but it wasn't till late that night. And one of the things with um, war is uh, whenever they sign the peace accord, a ceasefire, fighting goes on until that very second, till that minute. Like, if it's 11.05 at night, fighting goes on right up to 11.05 and then stops, dead silence. The fear of all military men when they know it's pretty much the last day of the war is nobody wants to die on the last day of the war. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've made it through the war. They don't want to die that day. And they handpicked all these men, and they decided Ricardo would be the American character that would die on the last day of the war. And they wanted to set it up so you were with these men all through this last day and you would really get to relate to them and like them. And then, and Ricardo would be the one, and then he would die on the last day of the war. And they picked my dad's friend, Ricardo, to play the part of the soldier that would die. And 
so they, they started filming it, and my dad had gotten one letter from Ricardo, and it was mailed two days before he was picked for this movie. So there was not a single mention of this movie in it. Um, now, it was written up as a TDY, as temporary duty order, and they had to obey. Cardo had been squad leader. Now, you have to understand, he was very gung-ho when he was at boot camp and everything else. The minute, however, he arrived in Korea, his first day, they went up Old Baldy. And the last few months of the war, it, all the fighting was pretty much centered on, the, I call them the evil twins of Old Baldy and Porkchop Hill. Right. That's where he did all of the fighting, were those two hills. And his first day he went up that one, and his first letter to um, another mutual friend back in El Paso named Calvin Crenshaw, his first letter to him, the macho was gone. He wanted to come home. It was over. He just was like, I I, this place is hell. I can't believe I wanted to come here. And, excuse me, he, uh, I just, the stark contrast I remember reading through all these letters was just shocking that he had been all gung-ho and kind of ragging uh, Calvin, who was at home and had signed up, and he was at Fort Bliss and hadn't volunteered to go overseas like Ricardo had. And it was such a contrast. I was stunned when I read them at the switch and I thought this this man's afraid he doesn't like it and he wants to go home which was so striking when he was picked for the movie now by the time I found this in the early 90s how Wallace had died he died in 1986 his son directed me uh how to get the information and the movie and everything and I did track down the director who was still alive at the time but he died in 1999 and here's what they told me uh, from tracking all that down. And it took two years to track down all the men who'd been in the movie or family members if they had, you know, passed on. And they all told me the same thing. They said, we were thrilled to have been picked for this movie, every single one of us, because we got to sleep in real beds um, at the War Correspondents Building in Seoul instead of, you know, in tents or in uh, trenches because uh, Korea brought back trench warfare. Hadn't been as big in World War II, was huge in World War I. Korea brought it back, and there was a lot of trench warfare at the time. And uh, they said, you know, we, we sleep in real beds. We had sheets. Um, the war correspondents treated us like royalty. They gave us all the cigars and whiskey we could drink. <laughs> I thought that was adorable. They said, but our meals were served by waiters on on tablecloths with linen, you know, linen tablecloths on tables. I mean, we were out of the mud and the blood and the fear, and we were, every single one of us was thrilled, they said, except Ricardo. He was so odd. He wasn't. From the minute he was picked, he obeyed. But every single day, the same pattern began. Every night, he would pray the same thing. Please don't let the Chinese attack pork chop till I get back. Now, you have to understand, he had been squad leader when chosen for the movie, and 
he knew what Baldy and Porkchop were like. Now, at the time he was picked for the movie, he was uh, back of the forward area resting up because they had done something like 64 straight days of fighting on Baldy and Porkchop. He was already squad leader by then because their numbers were so few and the fighting had been so horrendous those last months on those hills. And they were back of the forward area uh, resting up a little when he was chosen. He felt tremendous guilt leaving his men and getting what he called the star treatment. He kept saying, I need to get back to my fellas. The guy that took my place is too green. He'll get my fellas killed. And I can't live with myself. If I'm back here getting the star treatment while they're in the mud and the blood, and what if one of them dies or all of them die because I wasn't there? I can't live with that. I need to go back. Well, they said this kept being the same pattern. Every night they said before bed he would pray because he was Catholic and he was religious and uh, he loved his mother. He spoke of his mother a great deal. And he said um, every night he would pray the same prayer. Please, God, don't let the Chinese attack till I get back. The Chinese had started really amassing on Baldy and Porkchop for one last final assault. So they knew it was coming when he was picked for the movie. So every night he prayed the same thing. Don't let them attack till I get back. Every morning, they said, first thing he would do, before he'd even go piss, that's exactly what they said to me. Uh, they said, you know, we'd, we'd all run to the bathroom. He would run to the war correspondent room where there was the radio from the front lines where they would be taking notes and monitoring during the night what had been going on with fighting. And first thing, he would run to them and ask, did they attack pork chop last night? Every day. And the answer so far was no, because the Chinese loved nighttime attacks. They would always attack at night with bells and whistles to increase the terror and the fear. And they said as soon as he would find out that the answer was no, before going bathroom again, they said we just we didn't know how he held it so long, he would run back, kneel by his bed, and pray and thank God that he kept his word and not let the Chinese attack that night. They said it was the same pattern morning and night. And then Owen Crump, uh, when I talked to him, said he was the strangest young man, I'll tell you, because uh, every damn day he bothered me. And he said I couldn't figure out what it was. You know, was he on a glory kick? You know, was he bucking for a promotion? What was the thing? And I kept telling him, we are weeks away from shooting your death scene. Because he kept asking, can you kill me off today? Can you kill me off today? And the answer was always no. Weeks away from that, we just started filming. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, he uh, haranguing them. And the other men said we couldn't figure him out. You know, uh, he had been right up at the forward area. The other men who'd actually been in his squad when he was chosen, they were thrilled. They couldn't figure it out either. Um, and as I'm looking at that, I'm remembering his first letter to his friend Calvin when he got uh, to Korea and the, the monumental shift to, I want out of here, this is hell. And I, all I could think was, Ricardo, you're out of there. 
you're out of hell. Now suddenly you want to go back. What is it? What changed you? Because first you're gung-ho. You were a young man raised on John Wayne and Gary Cooper in World War II, and you were going to go do the same thing. You got there. The reality hit you. You wanted to go home. You hated it there. Now you have a chance to, A, be in a Hollywood movie, which back then was every young man's ambition, including my dad's, I mean, everybody's, and B, get out of the fighting, which was your number one desire. And now you want to go back. And I'm like, I can see why they were confused by him, because he doesn't seem to know exactly what he wants. And they said it just started to drive the director crazy. And Owen Crump told me, uh, you know, as we went along, I would send the rushes of the movie back to Hal Wallace at Paramount, and he would go over them and, and then wire back uh, back then because, you know, overseas calls were difficult. They often didn't connect or they would drop um, and extremely expensive. So they uh, usually used Telegram back then to communicate. And uh, he said he wired back as he got the rushes with any suggestions, changes, different angles, different shots, redoing scenes, whatever. And he said, but one of these times, he wired back to me and said, this kid from Texas, this Carrasco kid, he said, this kid has it. Now, in that article that I was reading by Hal Wallace, he said, you know, I always knew it when I saw it, but I had never been able to define what it exactly was. But I knew it when I saw it. And he said, I saw it in this kid from Texas, this 19-year-old kid named Ricardo Carrasco a private first class from Texas. And I wired back to Hal Wallace, get him under a two-year starter contract with Paramount. I'm going to make him a star. Well, uh, Owen Crump thought his problems were solved, you know, because this kid was driving him nuts. And so one day at the end of filming, he called Ricardo to the tent, and they kept some tents up at the front line so he could review shots and see if they needed to do more. And uh, he called him into his tent, and, and he put him at ease. Now, you have to understand, Owen Crump had been a colonel during World War II with the Signal Corps, which meant he did a lot of the filming. And he also did a lot of uh, propaganda-type films up front. And get this, he was a colonel with the Signal Corps, and the Army Air Corps is what it was called in World War II. It wasn't the Air Force till right before the Korean War under uh, Truman. And he had Ronald Reagan was a captain under him and worked in the Signal Corps during World War II. I thought that was wonderful that it was Reagan. But he was his, Reagan's uh, CO during uh, World War II, and I thought, oh, my gosh, this just keeps getting better. But anyway, so he understood military, and he understood uh, fighting and war probably better than a lot of people because he had to watch it from behind a camera, film it, document it. He, he knew it forward and back. And so he couldn't figure Ricardo out, but he thought this was over now because he said this kid is being handed a way out of this on a silver platter. He's going to take it. He's going to love it. He could not wait to tell him that night. So when Ricardo came in, he put him at ease, and, and he told him, um, young man, you've just been given the golden goose. And and he said, sir, and he was like, I know you know who Hal Wallace is. And he said, yes, sir, everyone knows Hal Wallace. 
And he said, um, he has seen the rushes of the making of this movie. And he is so impressed with you. He wants to make you a star. He's offering you a two-year contract with Paramount. And, he, and Owen said, I was expecting, you know, the color to drain from his face, him to scream, jump up and down, yell. And he said, he didn't. He said, he kind of looked down. He was very quiet. And I thought, well, maybe it's just shock. So he said, I kind of mumbled, repeating more, trying to figure out, is this just shock? And he said, the young man looked up, and I could tell on his face, he was not impressed. And he looked me square in the eye and said, thank you, sir. No, sir. No, thank you. Can you kill me off tomorrow? And he said, Risa, I was floored. First of all, no one turns down Hal Wallace, ever. He was, at that time, considered the most powerful man in Hollywood. He said, second of all, I sure as hell wasn't going to tell him. Uh-uh. <laughs> this man was my boss. I, I was going to tell him his first turn down in all his illustrious career had just come from this 19-year-old kid. And he said, and third of all, I was completely baffled, and now I was mad. And I said, what? And he said, thank you, sir, but no, I need to get back to my fellows. Can you kill me off tomorrow? And he said, I cussed up a storm at that young man and said, are you on a glory kick? What the hell is wrong with you? And he said, and I, I moderated that for you because I used way more words than hell. And he said, I was that angry. And he said at first, Ricardo kind of said, well, you know, you know, they need me. And, I, and then I brought up, they've got somebody else taking over. Well, he's too green. He kept saying this, and I finally just said, you know, cut through the BS. What is it? You are turning down the most powerful man in Hollywood for a war that's going to be over in days. Because by this time, it was the first week of July. And the ceasefire officially went into effect on July 27th. They knew it was days away at the time. And he said, so you're going to tell me right now why you keep driving me insane wanting to go back. Why you aren't thrilled at this opportunity that every other young man in America, let alone on the front lines of the war, would have given anything to have. You're going to tell me now. And he said, Ricardo paused for a moment, and then he said to him, sir, I was brought up to do what was right by my mom and dad. And he said, I... I can't, in good conscience, sit back here getting star treatment when I know what those men are going through. And he said, the Chinese are amassing for another assault. The guy that took over for me has no clue what's going to happen. And he said, I could not live with myself if any of those men died because I wasn't there to help or to lead or to fight. And he said, I was raised to do things right. And it is more important that I do that, be in a Hollywood movie. And how Wallace said, you know, now it was my job. I was completely stunned. I mean, just stunned. She said, you didn't really see this level of ethics in Hollywood when they were promising you fame, fortune, women, 
everything you ever wanted. And here he was with ramrod straight back and integrity galore. And he said, I was stunned in the silence. And then I started to think, Wallace is going to kill me. <laughs> he does not take rejection well. And so I told him, you know, uh, we'll discuss it later. Just get out. And he said, I turned around and put my head down for it seemed like forever. Finally, I got out the telegram pad and, and called in my assistant, and I scribbled out a telegram to Hal Wallace, telling him that Ricardo Idot made the offer. He turned it down and that he was still insisting on being killed off early and going back to the front. And I had the assistant go immediately to Soul Energy and wire it off because I was at my limit. And he said, uh, the next day, I got up, and I had been planning to wait until I heard back from Wallace on what to do. But the next morning, first thing, there he was, and immediately going and praying and thanking God that they hadn't. And then he got dressed. We all had breakfast and met for filming. And he came up and said, have you made your decision yet, sir? Because I really need to get back. I have been lucky so far. The Chinese have not hit pork chop yet. My luck's not going to hold. And he said, my prayers aren't going to last forever. Eventually, they are going to hit. And he said, that was it. I could literally feel the snap. I could not take any more. So I told him after breakfast, um, he said, we always shot our close-up in morning light because that was the best light. So I said, all right, Carrasco, I, I rewrote the script during breakfast, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you off this morning. We're going to shoot all the close-ups this morning. We'll get some of the others in the afternoon, and then probably later this uh, late afternoon, early evening, you can go back. And he said, for the first time, Ricardo was this happy, bubbly, grinning fool, jumping all around. He had not acted that way one day, but that morning he did. And I, oh, he that said was, he hit his mark. He, that, that was, that was the morning on, of July 6th, July 6th 1963. Right. Now, if historians are listening, they're going to know the significance of that date, and I'll get to it. And and uh, how Wallace said he was magnificent. I mean, excuse me, Owen Crump said that. And he said he hit everything. And it was the best footage I've ever, I'd ever gotten of him. And he said immediately after lunch, as we were wrapping up, some of the other scenes that didn't require morning light. He said, I, I turned my back and I was going to uh, pack up some of the supplies we were done with. And I, I knew, he said, I heard crunching behind me, someone coming up behind me. And I knew it was Carrasco immediately. And he said, sir, are we done? And I said, yes. And he, and he said, uh, uh, may I go? And he uh excuse me, Crump said uh, he turned and called one of the other men who was from the same company Ricardo was in. And he turned to that man and said, um, would you please run uh, Carrasco here back to the forward area on Porkchop? Now, this guy had been on Porkchop with Ricardo, and he looked at him and said, what? I can't take another day of this. Just take him back. And he said, I heard a boyish from Ricardo, and he literally skipped and turned in one step and ran 
to grab his gear and his rucksack. And I said he'd already packed the night. He kept himself packed so that if he was able to talk me into letting him go, he could grab everything and go. He used to drive us crazy. He took everything with him all the time so that he could go if he needed to. And he said he immediately went and got his gear, came running back and breathlessly, I'm ready. And the young man that was supposed to drive him said, is this real? And he said, I rewrote the script. We, we killed him off. Just take him back. And um, the guy said, thank you, sir, and saluted him. And he goes, at, you know, he had the signed paper saying he was released from temporary duty. And all of that was done. And they took off. And I later heard from Ricardo's family that uh, the guy cussed him out the whole way. His uh, fellow 32nd Infantry Regiment, Company A, you know, his squad member just cussed him out the whole way for going back early. And he said all Ricardo did was smile and talk about the upcoming football season and talk about his mother. And that was it. He just took my abuse and just talked about he couldn't wait for football season in El Paso and he couldn't wait to see his mother again. And he said he got out and it was, it was uh, evening by the time we got back to Port Chuck. Still lie out, of course, because it's summer. And he said the last image he had of him is he climbed out of the teeth and he, he threw the rucksack over his shoulder and then turned with the tree arm and put a hand up in that just single wave. And then he said started running toward uh, his men and he could hear a bunch of, hey, Crosco, what are you doing back? And Ricardo was saying, oh, they're done with me. They don't need me anymore. He didn't even let them know that he'd bug them until they sent him home. And he just shook his head and went back uh, to the camp and, and then on to Seoul, uh, where they were staying the night, of course, still. Well, power of prayer, and be careful what you ask for. God kept his word, and the Chinese had not attacked until that night. And the Chinese attacked that night, and he was killed at 11.25 by a mortar. Twelve hours after he had shot the Kosa, died in real life. Wow. Which is why I named the book what I did, Forgotten Warrior, Twice in One Day, because he's the only man I've ever known in the military who died twice the same day. He died in movie life, and 12 hours later, he died in real life. And what struck me, he didn't have to be there, and he wasn't supposed to be there. He chose to go back, and they all said he was driven. He was driven and went back. And what really strikes me is nobody, not the director, not his family, not my dad, and not any of the men that served with him knew this. I didn't find this out until I was able to get copies of the morning report and Ricardo's own deceased personnel file. None of them knew he had died the same day because of the fog of war and the slowness of communication at that time. They had all assumed that he had died a few days after returning. Hal Wallace in that article even said that he was angry when he got the notice from Owen Crump saying Ricardo wanted, had turned him down and wanted to go back to the front. 
But he said, when I calmed down, I turned around and wrote a telegram back saying, fine, you know, the war is going to be over in days. So here's what we'll do. We'll make the offer again. Then once his sense of duty is fulfilled, he'll take it. No 19-year-old American man raised on John Wayne is going to turn this down. And so uh, he fired that off to Owen Crump, and it had arrived uh, a couple of days later. Um, right around the time they'd gotten notice, because it took about a week to get notice that Ricardo had died. Um, they got the notice, uh, and they'd already been notified that Ricardo had died, and he read that, and he couldn't believe it. So he wired back to Hal Wallace and told him that had died a few days after leaving because they had all assumed that. They weren't given a time or a date. And not even the family knew that. But when I got the morning or the morning reports that showed it, it said return from TDY on July 6th. And the next morning in the morning reports of the after action on July 7th, it said, Killed in action, 11.25 p.m., July 6th. And I, w- I took it to my dad and said, Dad, because I'd assumed they had all gotten it right, but it was a few days later. And I asked him, Dad, is this saying what I think it says? And he looked at it, his face just went pale and he went, oh, my gosh, he died the same day. He said that we were always told it was a few days later. Everything said that. And I went, Dad, he died the exact same day. They shot his death scene and he went back. And my dad just kind of sat down in the chair. His legs went weak. He couldn't believe it. And he said, that explains a lot. And he got out his book. And I had seen this before. There were three newspaper articles in there from the El Paso Times. And they went like this. El Paso GI picked to star in movie. And its date was uh, toward the end of June, June 30th, if I remember right. The next article, about 10 days later, said, El Paso GI asks to be killed early. And underneath it, it said, heart at the front with his fellas. That's the mm-hmm. term he kept using, his fellas. And it was on June 10th. It, that one was written. And right next to it was number three. And it said, El Paso GI killed in real battle after returning from movie. And lo and behold, the date of that article was the exact same day, July 10th. And he went, I always wondered why these came out on the same day. And I went, that was a clue. Yeah, that was it, a clue it, it, because they would have arrived around the same time, sent by wire from Korea from the war correspondents. There, they would have arrived around the same time, and that's why they were in the paper on the same day. I always find that there's, remarkable. There's been some questions coming up in the chat room, and um, oh, no problem. People don't yeah. understand. 
people don't understand that Ricardo was assigned. He was under orders to do this movie. It wasn't something he yes, volunteered for. Yes, it was for. a TDY. They, right. They did this in cooperation with the DOD, made this movie on the front lines. And so uh, how Wallace, in cooperation with the DOD, all the young men, and this had never been done before, so it was unprecedented. So the DOD had to get permission for these men, which came in the form of a temporary duty order, a TDY. And they were given that. They went to the front, uh, and that's why Ricardo did it. But every day, he begged to go back. And that's one of the mm. things that uh, Owen Crump had said. You're under TDY. You know this is a temporary duty order. And, you know, this man was uh, a retired colonel. And he's like, plus I'm a colonel. I outrank you. And uh, you have to obey. And so they were. They were under TDY. These were temporary orders. What really struck me and what got me going on this wasn't just that it was those newspaper articles and the sequence of them from from El Paso G.I. picked for a movie. They were all excited. El Paso G.I. asked to be killed early, and it's puzzling. And then El Paso G.I. killed in real-life battle. And it was shocking to everybody. What got me, though, was Hal Wallace is he followed up um, as the ceasefire went into effect. And she asked his assistant to go find out and get a hold of Owen Crump and and find out uh, if now that the ceasefire was in effect, he'd make the offer again. And it was not till the next day that came back and he said, he said that he was killed a few days after he left the front. And Hal Wallace said, I was stunned. This young man had turned down in Hollywood's heyday a chance to be a movie star, to go back and fight at the front lines in the mud and the blood for his friends, for his fellows. And he said, and at that moment, this is why he wrote the article, because he said this was such a profound moment. At that moment, he said, I realized what the it was that I had seen in Ricardo. He said it was character. He had character. And because he'd been a man of character, his choice had been clear. Now you have to understand, this was in around 92 when Bill Clinton was running for office. And everyone was saying character doesn't count. I don't know if a lot of people remember that. That impacted me tremendously that summer. I was actually angry. He's the one election where I cried when he won because, A, it was clear to me he didn't win legally. There there was cheating going on. That was clear to me. Two, we had just elected a man that was a rapist, that was a liar and a cheater, and it was his wife, though, that I found to be a narcissistic sociopath completely. But we had elected a man here in America Four years after Ronald Reagan, because who had been a man of character, saying that character no longer matters. And at the time, I had a one-and-a-half, two-year-old son. I knew I was going to have more sons. And in my rage, because I felt rage, that this country, built on men of character who sacrificed greatly, they would dare to be saying character didn't matter anymore. And I went, this man lived and died for character. 
19 years and had bigger balls than all of them combined. How <laughs> dare they? They will yeah. not get away with this. Well, and I've been you're, after you're that story get... for 27 years. Well, you know, people can uh, find out more about it because you've got yourself a blog. There's a link up in the show page for people I, I do. Listening. I have a GoFundMe. I have a GoFundMe yeah. because I've been after it this long, and I've done it completely alone. I had no support, ironically, from my dad, uh, my ex, now ex-husband, nobody. In fact, they actively tried to stop me. They thought after I got my first no, I should quit. If I quit then, we never would have found this stuff out about Ricardo. We never would have found out it was the only time in history. We never would have found any of that out. So I have a GoFundMe started because I'm four chapters into this book. But in order to finish this book and start the script, I have to be able to focus on this and nothing else, which means I have to meet living expenses for seven or eight months. Plus, I have to uh, script writing is quite different from the kind of writing I do. So I do have to be able to pay an assistant to help me write the script as well, or at least a rough script. I started a GoFundMe to raise enough money to cover expenses for about seven or eight months while I finish this. I have all the pictures. It took me over a decade to get all the documentation, and it took two straight years of nagging Paramount every week to get a copy of the movie because it had never been released on video. Two straight oh, years, on and it took me five years to find all the men uh, that were involved, and that was always their first question. My wife, my kids, my parents never got to see it. Please, do uh, you have a copy? It was very important yeah. to them as well. Well, actually, yeah. actually, uh, it's up, the movie's up on YouTube, C-SPAR. Yes, I watched it twice, mm-hmm. twice last night. In fact, <laughs> it was because of me that they started showing it on uh, the AMC, American Movie Classic. They had never shown it. It had never been released on video, not even shown on TV until 2004, and it was because of me bringing it to their attention and nagging the crap out of their legal department until they finally let me have a copy and looked the other way while I made copies for each of these men and their children so they could have them. And it took two years um, every week. the DVD has been released uh, as of this month. Yes, it has. So people go up onto Amazon. And would you believe I was up on Amazon looking at some of the memorabilia and they have right. like one of the movie posters going for like $250. Right. Uh, right. And the movie oh, is, I, I is not cheap. I for $5, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Korea, yeah. the reason I need to strike now, if there's ever a time that this is the hottest topic in the world, it is the number one topic across the planet. Right now, it's now. Korean War movies are definitely in demand. In fact, I have to tell you, this is the first time I'm telling everyone publicly, I actually, after 27 years of trying, out of the blue, right after the summit, was approached by a uh, PR group asking to represent me. 27 years. And they mocked and ridiculed me and all of them in the past saying, Korea, who cares? Are we even still fighting that war? I, I mean, that, that has half a page in my history book. I said, yeah, and I'm going to change that epic assholery because that's wrong. And it's my Southern. You don't get my Southern up. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> and you don't do that about our men. And uh, my dad, boy, his family, very deep south. And boy, I got my, boy, he got my Southern up. Oh, he regretted that. 
But, <laughs> oh, no, I told him right to his face. He kissed the fattest part of my, I won't say it on the radio, but his my bottom half, and that I would just do this myself. But it's going against it because you wouldn't believe the number of people, even as recently as six months ago, why are you even writing about this? You know, uh, this one guy argued with me. We're not fighting that war. That's not our longest war. I'm like, you, you, you got to be kidding. I don't feel yeah, like I, when, when Donald Trump actually used those words, I'm going, is this man reading me? Because, well, one of his uh, people on his media team is one of my dearest friends, Dr. Gina Loudon. And she's on his media team. So I've wondered all along because uh, – when we were both writing for Politic, she was uh, very pushing of my stuff. And, boy, North Korea was my big thing. And giving the details of the Korean War and how it was our longest-running war, you wouldn't believe the number of people. I had no idea. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to go on a killing spree yet, but if I hear that one more time in America, <laughs> I'm going on a killing spree. <laughs> That's a joke. You laugh. I'm not actually going to go on a kill. You know, nowadays. We have to all I know. know a two-year-old Democrat is listening for heaven's sake. <laughs> they are out of control. they got to go. <laughs> no, because when they were talking about North Korea and everything else, and I have said on air, and my listeners know, the Korean War has never, ever That's ended. That's right. We've had a ceasefire, you know but what? no when, peace treaty. Exactly. And I get angry when everyone keeps on saying the Korean peace treaty was signed July 25th, 19th. No, it wasn't. That was a ceasefire. There was no we peace have, treaty. None. They agreed to temporarily none. stop shooting. That's, that's a ceasefire. That's not a peace treaty. No, and if if anyone does, does a history, uh, do a little Google search on the history, you'd be amazed how many people died after the ceasefire went into effect, how many exactly. Americans? And it's a mm-hmm. tremendous number, and we are still trading shots almost daily. Of course, the we uh, are. no man's zone. Yes, definitely. And and you know, there's a young man named David Snedden whose family lives right here in Utah, up in the Logan area, and he was snatched while he was in China. Now, Korea has a long history of snatching people from other countries. Um, they, they've taken thousands of South Koreans and Japanese, uh, Chinese, and uh, POWs from America were reported having been seen, white Americans and, and black Americans. That's only Americans. There's no way to confuse that. Uh, very elderly men, seen as recently as the late 90s. So it's amazing to me. I don't know how they're going to work that out because, He'd have to know there'd have to be some war crimes here. Oh, yeah. And Absolutely. I'm very strict on uh, he can't be let off the hook for that. The, I mean, there has been nobody worse than North Korea. I mean, Stalin and Mao, but the Kim dynasty of totalitarians, of, of commie bastards, is what I call them, all one word. Um that used to be the favorite thing back in the 50s and 60s to call them, and I agree 100%. Um, you know, the old saying, better dead than red. Well, are we seeing that now? The Democrats need to learn that now. They have completely sold out to communism. And if any of them are listening, take that. But <laughs> that's how we all feel about y'all. So uh, I, I, I'm completely disgusted, and I see... I see a problem with Moon, 
And I've not seen anyone else talk about that. The reason I see a problem with Moon is because I know communism so well. Moon is acting exactly like Stalin and Mao and Khrushchev and all of the old Soviet leaders. He came in under some sort of charge against the current uh, South Korean president. And he kind of overtook it. Then he charged her, and she's in jail for like three life sentences. Now he's going after her predecessor. And I thought, that's what the old Soviet dictators would do when they took over a place. They would have a monkey court trial on trumped-up charges, jail their predecessor, and go after any other predecessors. I said, and that's exactly what Moon's doing. That's a B. Kim did not change his stance until Moon. Exactly. exactly. And everyone knows Moon was a socialist. Yep. I'm looking at the clock, and we've got well, I'm asking five everyone and a half to minutes. go to my GoFundMe. I have everything up there so we can learn about the story, but I've got to raise the money or I cannot finish it. This is the type of story you have to focus on. I've gathered all the pictures, all the documentation, all the stories from the men, but I have to have the funds to be able to meet my living expenses while I finish this. This is a 24-7 job. Four chapters. Right. Done. I figure I've got about four or five more. It's GoFundMe backslash Teach Them Character. That's my GoFundMe page. GoFundMe. Oh, I've, I've got it up. Uh, I got it up on the um, backslash. Yeah. I've got it up on the show page, so when people listen to the podcast, they can click on it and go straight Wonderful. to it. I also have your your America's War check on it too. The story. Yes. Yes. I made a six-minute video there of the story. They can call me. They can email me. They can do it that way. They can get in touch with me if they want to do it another way uh, and, and set it up. But I can't finish it. And let me tell you, time to strike is right. It's now. And I think that's why this group uh, wrote to me asking to represent me. I've gone over the contract and signed it. But I do have to pay $1,000 for a press package. That's standard. This group did do uh, does represent the Politichick, uh and Leslie Marshall, boo, from Fox News. He's that liberal hack. But, I mean, they, they tried to get everybody in, and they said she's actually quite nice. So I'll take their word for it. They're, they themselves tend to be very conservative. They represent her. Uh, they used to represent Dr. Gina Loudon, uh, but they shot too big uh, when she got on Trump's media. Campaign, and of course now you see her on Fox News all the time, and she has her own show. And I'm actually supposed to go on her show once I uh, pay for the press package and send that in with the contract. So it is actually moving now as a result of the summit, because it was right after the summit. This guy out of the blue contacted me, and I'm like, "Where have you guys been for 27 years? You've not been paying me the time of the day." Summit happens, and now I've got people saying. Hey, I'm kind of interested in this. I really yeah. do think Korean War movies are going to be the big thing for the next few years because I'm not totally convinced this is going to happen because I don't trust Moon's motives and I don't trust the breakneck switch of Kim, but I do trust President Trump. This man yeah. knows what he's doing. He has nailed it in every step. And this is from someone originally, I was no Trump supporter because I was looking for another Ronald Reagan. I wanted someone of that level of morality and who he was. But I will tell you this, I got it wrong 
and I never thought I'd say this, Trump is better than even Reagan. I would support that man to my grave today. (laughs) Because I'm telling you, that man has pulled off the impossible, and he is genuine. I've actually talked to some of the people, like uh, the North Korean man who raised his clutches at the State of the Union, and he is for real. Like the families that have been killed by um, uh, illegal immigrants, they've Mm -hmm. loved him for what he's done. And they've all said he's real. And I believe it, and I am happy to admit I got it wrong. This is a man who has evolved. Because, yes, there were times in the past he was more liberal, but he's not now. And I tell you, it's war. Stop the Democrats. The bastards are evil, and they're going down. <laughs> well, we got one last question my friend Cal had wanted me to ask you earlier. If you have ever heard, because you're into movies and history and everything else, have you ever heard of Continental, um, Continental American? Have I ever- it used to be Continental American. It used to, the Continental American. They used to teach us basic American language in school, but no longer any, anymore. Yes. So hey, that's why I don't teach. I got my degree originally in education. I refuse to teach. You know why? Because I wouldn't join the NEA. I didn't join the student NEA when I was in college. The thing is, the Communist Manifesto. Parents need to read. The charter of the NEA, it doesn't even mention students are teaching. It's all about labor and the teachers and parents do not have rights once their kids are in school. I used to butt heads with my professors. Don't you, don't you, parents, one, two words, homeschool. Don't (laughs) put your kids in public school. Get rid of the damned NEA and get rid of the Carter-created Department of Education. Did you know that's what got Reagan the landslide in 1980? Because the, um, our founders said education must remain local with school boards and parents having the final say. And when Absolutely. Carter federalized it, which was forbidden by the founders, that's when Reagan said, that's it, stood up, got him the landslide. Get rid. Department of Education needs to go. They're commie bastards, every last one of them. You don't believe me? Read the charter of the NEA. The NEA is the one that brought about the Department of Education to federalize well, it. Oh, don't get me on education. I, will, I am a gifted teacher, but I will not teach. <laughs> I will not teach so long as and you're forced to join the NEA if you want to teach. I'm not going out in faith in Jesus with my name signed to that big red document of crummy bastardhood. No. I got enough sins in my wheelbarrow. I ain't adding that to it. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, Reese, we're going to have to have you back on because there's a lot for you to rant about, and we are out of time. Uh, really, we're at the I'm end. I'm so. so sorry, and I talked and talked. It's it's not an easy story to tell because, like I said, get this: the Pentagon didn't even know. The guy, the PR department at the Pentagon, accused me of making this story up. He called the Hollywood DOD office, and an hour later, I got a very, very humble call from him saying, "Ah." I owe you an apology. <laughs> but yeah, I know. I've been sitting by the phone. On that fat ass you called me. <laughs> he did. He called me. <laughs> some, I'm not going to believe some fat ass in Idaho. I'm like, okay. 
Go ahead, Nate. Call back one. And now we're great friends. Major Mark Tolbert. I love the man. Uh, well, he's retired now. But he was their PR department, called the DOD, and the guy told him there, you owe her an apology because the poster for that movie is right over my desk. We cooperated <laughs> with it. It happened. You better apologize because I'm going to follow up and find out if you did. He did. <laughs> well, I love military men. Oh, God bless him. <laughs> I mean, the, the stories around this. The first to have black and whites in the same unit together, Johnny Mays. And Johnny Mays was from Greenwood, Mississippi, the most racist place on earth at the time. The movie theater owner had crosses burned on his lawn, threat, threatened with his life, rocks thrown through his window. You know why? For the first time in history, he allowed Johnny Mays' parents to sit where they wanted instead of the so-called Jim Crow seats, which were the balconies, mm-hmm. which is weird because those are the better seats. That's where the blacks sat. And they, the Klan threatened him because he made it clear that Johnny May's parents could sit wherever they wanted. And the Klan burned a cross, threatened his life, and he and his family came that night, stood their ground, and none of the other whites would sit near him. So he and his family filled the rows around him, sat right next to him. Now that is a warrior. Yes. Yes. Well, please, I want to thank you. That around, and that was fantastic. All right. Well, I want to thank you because I really do have to end the show here because we are at the I'll end. I'll let you go, Anne. <laughs> Anne, thank you for having me on. Please go. Please support this. Uh, GoFundMe.com backslash Teach Them Character. It's on Anne's page. Thanks a lot, Risa. You have a great thank evening. You, God bless. you too. Bye bye. All right, Curtis. Oh boy. Um, Talk about the <laughs> wow! What a story! What an absolute story! Did somebody, uh, but you will not. Did somebody say I fell asleep? <laughs> I was awake the whole time. <laughs> well, next week we've got Robert Farrow. He's got a website out, Right to Voice, and Burgess Owens is going to be joining us. And then we got Lee Bocum, who's got a new book out, along with uh, Richard Sander, um, <laughs> talking about integration in the United States. Uh, we got some great shows coming up, uh, and I'll be keep letting everyone know what's going on. Hopefully I'll get my computer up and running and the, the soundboard up and running again soon. But I want to thank everyone that joined us and hung in as we extended the show a little bit. And I will say, Curtis, travel safe next week, okay? And let me know what's going on. I will. And uh, for those that list, listen to participate in the chat room, thank you for joining us. Those that stayed up in the studio, thank you for hanging in there. Until then, I say good night and God bless, and I leave you with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Until then, good night and God bless.